well, let me tell you about something that's annoying me. I love breakfast. And on the odd occasion, I love going out for breakfast. But let me tell you what's annoying me. When I go out to some of these posh places for breakfast, I run my eye down the menu, and there's something I don't see. A greasy Ulster fry. I mean, why would you want to go out for breakfast and not see that greasy Ulster fry? Some of these posh places, they have all these healthy things, and I'm just trying to blend into this environment and going, where is this greasy Ulster fry? At least I've got that out of the way. But when I do find a lovely greasy spoon to have my Ulster fry, there's one thing I never want in it. Black pudding. Now, it divides. It's like Marmite. Some people love black pudding. Other people hate black pudding. But I read this week about a pastor who was making his way out of a church building after the morning service was over, and they shouted, Pastor, can a Christian eat black pudding? And he thought this was highly irregular to be asked on a Sunday morning, but a couple of very serious members were debating about whether a Christian can eat this type of blood sausage because of its blood background based on the Levitical laws of Leviticus 17. So what does that reveal to us? Well, it reveals to us that for a Christian living in the 21st century, there's times when we ask, what can a Christian do and not do? How much of the Old Testament is still binding on the Christian in the New Testament? How much of the Mosaic law, that is the law that was given to Moses from God in the Ten Commandments and the civil law that the Old Testament people lived under, the ceremonial law that the Old Testament people lived under, and the moral law that the Old Testament people of God lived under, how much of that is still binding on the Christian today? Is the fact that Leviticus 17 says that someone shouldn't eat this type of blood, does that mean you shouldn't eat black? Pudding. No doubt Stephen Nolan would be able to sort that out for us on the biggest show in the country on a Monday morning. And this is the sort of issue that the church at Rome were starting to struggle with. Because in this church in Rome, there, there's a melting pot of Gentiles. They were anyone who weren't a Jew who got saved by Jesus Christ, and they were in the church. But there were also Jews in the church who came from a Jewish background who were used to living under the ceremonial law, who were used to living under the civil law of Moses, who were used to living under the moral law of God. And so when they came together in church, they kind of looked at one another and said, who's right and who's wrong? How should we live as Christians in the first century? We asked the question, how can we live as Christians in the 21st century? What Paul's going to help us think about is Christian liberty. He's going to help us think about Christian liberty for those, if you're a Christian, who belong to Jesus Christ. So the Bible has much to say on it. In fact, here in Romans 14, there's lots and lots of verses about how we should live with one another. But there are lots of gray areas in the Bible. Is Sunday a Christian Sabbath or not? Is tithing, that means giving 10% of your offering, binding on the Christian today or not? Considering the millennium, will Christ set up a physical reign on earth for a thousand years or not? Are all the charismatic gifts available for today or not? When we think about music, 
should there be no instruments, lots of instruments, old hymns or contemporary songs, tattoos, to ink the body or not to ink the body, dancing at weddings or not dancing at weddings, alcohol, can the Christian drink in moderation or not, or what should they watch on on TV, on BBC, on Netflix, on Amazon Prime? I'm not talking about X-rated movies, but, but things that are debatable. What should the Christian do? What is Christian liberty for those who belong to Christ? There are some things in the Bible that are absolutely indisputable. You might call those primary doctrines, as in what the Bible says about the centrality of Jesus Christ, what the Bible says about the authority of God's Word. These are primary doctrines, but there's a lot of parts of the Bible which many call secondary issues or disputable or debatable things. And so this church at Rome are trying to get to the bottom of it. And it's important because if you've got your Bible there, you'll see how Paul has already handled different things about Christian living. He's used two verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to consider how the Christians should think. He's used six verses in Romans 12, 3 to 8 on how we should live with others in the body of Christ. He spent 13 verses in Romans 12, 9 to 21 on how we should love one another. He's used seven or eight verses in Romans 13 to describe how the church should interact with the government and the state. But he's now going to use 35 verses about how a Christian should or shouldn't use their liberty. So even by the weight of evidence, as we look at this Pauline epistle, Paul has a lot to think and say about how we should live with one another. Leon Morris writes this, one of the difficulties the church has always faced is that it includes in the membership rich people and poor people, powerful people and powerless people, those from every stratum of society, the old and the young, adults and children, conservatives and radicals, people from a great number of nations are Christians and people of every temperament, but this puts strain on us all living together. So what does it look like for us to have Christian liberty, but as those who belong to Jesus Christ? Firstly, don't judge other people about secondary issues. Firstly, don't judge other people about secondary issues. Look at what it says in the text. Paul writes, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Who were the weak and who were the strong? Now, there was about 30 pages in one of the commentaries I looked in as to the debate as to who the weak were and who the strong were, but the consensus is that in this little church at Rome, that the weak were those from a Jewish background, those who were coming out of living under the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law, and they're coming into this Christian church at Rome, and they're wondering, what should I hang on to? What should I hold on to? What has passed away now that Christ has come? And the Gentile Christians who never lived under any of that, who come out of really pagan backgrounds, they look upon it and go, what's wrong with these people? Why are they still hung up on all these Old Testament teachings? So many think the weak were Jewish Christians who refrained from certain kinds of foods and observed certain days out of a continuing loyalty to the Mosaic law. Many think the strong were these Gentile Christians who have been liberated by Jesus Christ from a pagan and sensual 
lifestyle. So here they are together in the church. And what's Paul's heart for this church? His heart is that they love each other. His heart is that they would be one body under the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ, that they would be a people who love one another, who care for one another, who sing to one another, who teach one another, who edify one another, who evangelize together based on their great unity in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's heart for the church. He says, stop getting hung up in the secondaries. Why are you so worried about all these secondary issues when Jesus Christ has given us a great commission to go into all the world and tell everyone this marvelous news that Jesus Christ frees people from sin and death? Don't get caught up. Paul has much to say about this theme of Christian liberty. Later, we'll see in a few weeks' time in Romans 15, 1 to 3, he speaks about our heart for other people. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. To the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak. You sin against Christ. And then listen to this. Listen to Paul's spirit-filled heart for other people. 1 Corinthians 9.22. To the weak, I became weak. Therefore, to the Jewish Christian who was used to living under the civil, the ceremony, and the moral law, when I was with them, I, I could accommodate to them, to help them, to to strengthen them. To to the weak, he said, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have, he says, become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul had a heart for those that were weak. He had a selfless attitude for other people. So look what Paul says here in verse 1. We are not to quarrel. Look what it says over opinions. Some people in the church love a fight. Some people in your families just love a fight. Some people in your workplaces just love a fight. They feed off it. And Paul says it's not, it's not meant to be this way in the church. Don't quarrel over opinions. I read this week that if you tied two street cats together by the tails, I don't know why you would want to do this, but anyway, I read about it, and you hung them over a clothesline, you'll soon have an example of what it looks like to be united but not unified. And so it is in the church. Some people love to fight over secondary issues. They feed off it. And Satan loves a quarreling church. Satan loves a divided church body. Satan loves people talking and texting about other people negatively about what they should or should not be doing. Don't quarrel, Paul says, over opinions. From Genesis 3 onwards, Satan has been bent on creating division and disharmony between the believer and God and the believer and the believer. Paul says don't quarrel for secondary issues. Pharisees love to to quarrel with Jesus on divorce and remarriage, on taxes to Caesars, on the law of Moses, on 
who Jesus socialized with and what he did or didn't do on the Sabbath day. And what they did was they got distracted from their primary mission. What's the real issue here at Rome? Well, they were falling out over meat and vegetables. Look at verse 2. Paul gets down a little bit further to the issue. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. You see, historians help us here that Jewish life in the Old Testament was governed by the law. There were certain foods that they could or couldn't eat. They could only eat kosher food. And so these, these Jewish converts who come into the church, they worried about where these meats were prepared, where these meats offered to idols, was the blood offered to idols. And so many of them said in order to, to keep themselves kosher, they'll just refrain from eating any type of meat or drink. But for the Gentile, it had never been an issue for them. And they had no need in their minds to avoid this type of behavior. Many say at that time the Gentiles sold all sacrificed meat in the butcher's shop, poured out the first fruits of the wine as a libation to their idols, and even made some offerings in the wine presses. And you can see how that sort of information would have filtered around the Jewish congregation. But how might you be a weak Christian today? If you're a new Christian, it's not your fault. You are just weak because you're a babe in Christ. You're new. There's lots of things that you haven't processed yet, lots of things you haven't computed yet. And there's a sense in which as a, as a newborn in Jesus Christ, you are in this category of weak. You might be a struggling believer through the circumstances of life. You just feel spiritually weak. You might be a malnourished Christian because you've come out of a church where there's a lack of teaching and you haven't been built up and you haven't grown in maturity into Christ, and so you're, you're weak. So Paul needs to write to us when whatever generation we're in, I said, what it looks like to find liberty in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he continues as they may have been critiquing and gossiping about one another in the church. Paul says directly, verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God welcomes them. You can imagine these Gentiles over here. Can you see what these legalistic Jews in the church are doing? They're mad. And the Jews over here in the church going, I'm not even sure these Gentiles are Christians. What can happen with you? And you see what somebody else in this church is doing and you're with such and such and you say, can you see what such and such is doing? I don't even know if they're a Christian. Paul says don't despise other believers, other Christians who've got a different opinion to you. Why? Because God embraces them. God loves them. God welcomes them. And so should you. It's as if he says, if God loves them, how can you, a finite sinner saved by grace, withhold a fellow sinner from fellowship with you? Some historians think that actually the problem was getting so bad that there was almost a Gentile congregation forming and a Jewish congregation forming because they simply couldn't get along. Paul says, don't quarrel like this. 
you should apply what Paul later says in Romans 15, verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I read another little paragraph in a book called Great Church Fights. What a title for a book. But there's a paragraph within it that says this, an international conclave for missionaries described how a woman from the Orient could not wear sandals with a clear conscience. Then there was a Christian at this conclave from Western Canada who thought it was worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. And there was a woman from Europe who thought that it was almost immoral for a wife not to wear a ring that signaled her status. And there was a man from Denmark who was pained to even watch British Bible school students playing football while the British Bible college students shrank from smoking the pipe of the man from Denmark. And they all thought about it. But the Bible didn't have much to say about those things, but they thought about them. And doesn't Satan love that? How he can get the church of Jesus Christ in the first century in Rome or the 21st century in Bangor and North Down to fight over secondary issues and miss the primary issue of proclamation of the gospel. So Paul says here, verse 4, who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for, verse 4, the Lord is able to make him stand. There's a little Pharisee lurking in the bottom of all of our hearts. True? True? There's a little Pharisee lurking at the bottom of all of our hearts. And Paul says, who are you? Who am I? To pass judgment in the servant of another of Jesus Christ when I'm not the master and neither are you. Christian, you're not Lord, but you're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other Christians do not belong to you or to me, but they belong to Jesus Christ. So as we would say in Northern Ireland, don't lose a run of yourself. As to who you are, obsessing and critiquing and gossiping and criticizing what this church is doing or what other members in this church are doing, when you've missed out on your primary calling to be a disciple yourself of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are a servant yourself of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop living out other people's service and focus on your own. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in James 4, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and there's only one judge. And he is able to save and destroy. And so who are you to judge your neighbor? There's a sense in which Paul says, stop being so concerned about other people's Christian sanctification and focus on your own. So then how do we do that? How can we focus Look at this second movement here in verses 5 to 9. Paul takes up another illustration. They were fighting over whether you should eat meat or vegetables or vegetables and meat or just vegetables. But what about the days? What about the Sabbath? What about the Saturday when the Jews normally met for worship? Paul writes verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all the days just the same. 
But whatever your perspective, Paul says, what should the heart of the Christian be? Each person, each Christian, each servant of Jesus Christ should be fully convinced in his own mind. When you're making decisions, Paul says, about secondary issues of being a servant of Jesus Christ, may your heart motivation be that, not which pleases yourself, not which is the most easy thing to do, but that which is most pleasing to Jesus. And be fully convinced about it in your own mind. How did Paul apply his own teaching? Well, F.F. Bruce writes this. Paul enjoyed his Christian liberty to the full. Never was a Christian more thoroughly emancipated or freed from unchristian inhibitions and taboos. So completely emancipated from spiritual bondage that he was not even in bondage to his emancipation. He conformed to the Jewish way of life when he was in Jewish society as cheerfully as he went along with Gentile ways when he was living with Gentiles. The interests of the gospel and the highest well-being of other men and women were more paramount to him than his own opinions. Isn't that lovely? Because we discovered just a few weeks ago that the Christian who is so filled with the Holy Spirit of God won't be thinking about what pleases them, but what pleases Jesus and serves others in the body of Christ. The Jews and the Gentiles just wanted to please themselves, their own backgrounds, their own heritage. So each one of us, when we are making decisions on secondary issues, should prayerfully and based on a judicious study of Scripture, the counsel of godly friends, elders and pastors within the church, help you to be fully convinced, not in our minds, but in your own minds. Because Paul continues, verse 6, the one who observes the day, perhaps the Saturday is the Sabbath for the Jew, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He's saying that the Gentile who's tucking into their sirloin steak can give thanks, I think, with a clear conscience that God has provided the sirloin steak. But also the Jew, the Christian over here who's got, believes Jesus is a Messiah who refrains from eating the meat can also at their dinner table have only vegetables and give thanks to God for these wonderful vegetables. And Paul the apostle, whether he's with that group or that group, he was happy to blend in for the sake of the gospel. Not on indisputable matters, but those that were secondary, those that were disputable. He was willing to be agile for the gospel, and so must we. Paul sums it up so succinctly in one verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So as you're trying to get fully convinced in your own mind about some of these secondary issues, about being a Christian, your heart attitude should be, in this secondary issue, am I glorifying the Lord by doing what I am going to do? Whether you eat, or whether you drink, or whatever you do, May those actions, may those decisions be all for the glory of God. Because Paul continues here, 
by ultimately saying, your life is not yours. When the world says, you do you, Paul says, no, your life is not yours. Look at verse 7. For purpose clause, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. He also says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, and he died, Jesus, for all, that those who live, why, why are we still here? They might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. He also says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, as you're trying to get fully convinced in your own mind about secondary issues that you're even battling with today, Paul says 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, so you, you don't do you, you're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Your life is not yours. If you're a Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God. At your conversion, when you became a Christian, you lost the right to act your own way, to think your own way, to live your own way. You are now to think about things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You are to be consumed with Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so you live for his glory and you live for other people. Tell me more, Paul, verse 8. For if we live, we're still here, we live to the Lord. And if we're taken home to be with Christ, like Harry and Doris in the last few days, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we're still alive or whether we're taken to be with Christ, these are the four beautiful words. We are the Lord's. Isn't that lovely? Paul said so much in this letter in Romans 1 to 11 about the glories of the gospel, who you are in Jesus Christ. He gets caught up in praise in chapter 11 and then all these chapters and verses about how we'd live and then he just takes this moment of pause to say, listen, you are the Lord's. You belong to God. And let me tell you what he thinks about you this morning. Well, you're treasured by him. Matthew 10, 31 says, fear not, therefore, you're more valuable than many sparrows. You're treasured by God. He's made you new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's become a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. You've been forgiven by Christ. 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then this beautiful freedom we have in Christ. Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been past times justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't he love you? Because he loves you. He says this then is how you need to live. For to this end, Christ died, verse 9, and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. We've got Christian liberty because we belong to Jesus Christ. But we can't judge others about secondary issues. Secondly, we should be living for an audience of one. That'll keep us on the right track. 
But lastly, just very quickly, and Paul will continue this theme, we live in light of eternity. Because the master of our house is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are servants. But what he is building is going to be for eternity. The architect and builder of our faith is God himself, and he's building a glorious eternity for the Christian. So we live in light of that. We make secondary decisions in light of that. So Paul gets particular again one last time in verse 10, and he asks us another question. Why are you spending so much time passing judgment on your brother? Think about how much time you over the years may have spent critiquing what other people are doing in church or other churches. Why do you spend so much time focusing on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Because look at what it says. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Another way to say it is, who am I, who are you, to be the judge, the juror, and the executioner of a fellow Christian when there's waiting a day when each one of us will stand on our own before Christ himself. Let me ask each one of you, are you ready for that day? Christian, you will stand there and what you will have done for Christ in this life will be judged. Now, you will get into heaven not based on those works that you have done. The only way you will get in is because of the work that has been through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what you have done will be judged and will be rewarded. But the non-Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, there's going to come a day when you will stand on your own before the judgment seat of Christ. And the only way you'll get in is if you repent of your sin. The only way that you will get in is if you say, I may be a good, moral, upstanding person, but I can only get into the glories of eternity if I've trusted alone in what Jesus has done for me. Do you, do you have that assurance? Have you repented of your own sin and placed your faith and your trust in Christ because of what he's done for you in the cross? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And then he wraps up this little part of his chapter in Romans 14. and says this, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each one will give an account of himself to God. The final exam of your life and mine is not one you can opt in or out of. The final exam of your life, you can't appeal for extra time. You can't appeal for special circumstances. You can't appeal based on an extenuating sickness. All of us will stand. All of us will give an account. All of us will enter one of two doors, one that leads to eternal life or one that leads to eternal hell and destruction. So Paul says, as a wonderfully made new person in Jesus Christ, why spend all those minutes? 
Why spend all those days? Why spend all those weeks? Why spend all those months? Why spend all those years as a Christian fighting about secondary issues? And focus on the mission of Jesus Christ. So let's just take a few moments to pray as we come now to the Lord's table and just in our own hearts, maybe examine ourselves, areas where we've been critical or harsh with others, areas of our life that are not conformed to Christ, where we've been abusing secondary issues. Let's just in the stillness confess, and then we'll spend time around the Lord's table. Our Father and our God, we praise you that we as believers have been freed, that we've been set free from the law, and that we live under grace. But Father, we pray that in our daily lives as Christians that we wouldn't use your grace as a license to go on sinning. In fact, your word tells us, our Father, may it never be. Help us then, Father, as we consider this theme of Christian liberty as we live alongside one another in this church. We praise you for the diversity, the diversity of age, the diversity of perspectives, the diversity of gifts, the diversity of talents, the diversity of creativity. And yet, our Father, with all these wonderful diversities, we pray that through Christ we might show liberty to one another, not so that we might live as we please, but that we might see your kingdom come here in North Down as it is in heaven. Father, would you by your Spirit forgive us for areas when we've been critical and we've spent too much time being derailed from the direction of taking your gospel across the street and to the ends of the earth. So, Lord, as we come now to your table, we thank you for the great freedom we have in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.